day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Fresh Frozen Southerner podcast. My name is Jay. I hope all is well. Okay, boys and girls, we're going to do another one of my half-assed history lessons today. Now, when I do these, I generally intend to do them on stories from American history because those are the events that have made us who we are today. And there are just so many obscure and bizarre tales from our combined history that just absolutely need a retelling. There's there's so much fodder there to talk about, things that nobody's ever heard of. But obviously, events in Europe have had a huge impact on our national identity, particularly if you're talking about World War One and World War II. Uh, World War One established America as a legitimate military force. Leading up to that war, we were just kind of this strange little nation that we were off by ourselves. We had had a isolationist policy for a long time. We hadn't gotten involved in international wars. And our military was sort of an unknown entity up until World War One, where we proved that we could compete in conflicts on a global stage. And then, of course, World War II, after that, we emerged as the superpower that we all know today. Uh, actually, leading into World War II, you always see lists of the strongest militaries in the world. At the beginning of World War II, I think America's army was ranked somewhere in the mid-teens. Uh, we did not have the dominant military force that, that I grew up my entire life knowing we had. It was a very different time in our country's history. Also, World War II ended the Great Depression. Now, when I was in school, it was always sort of suggested that the ramp up to the war, when we started manufacturing munitions and tanks and planes and sending supplies to Great Britain, that that is what ended the Great Depression. That actually is not the end of the Great Depression. World War II ended the Great Depression because after the war, Britain, Germany, Russia, France, China, Japan, all of the industrial countries in the world had been carpet bombed. These countries had no manufacturing capabilities. Their infrastructure was gone. They had used most of their raw materials to keep the war effort going. So you had 75% of the industrialized world needed to be completely rebuilt from the ground up, and there was only one country on the planet that could provide the materials, and the items that the rest of the world needed, and that was America. That is why we came out of the Great Depression. It's sort of like if you took a city the size of New York City and you owned the only department store in that entire city. You're going to make money hand over fist because everybody in the city is coming to you to buy their stuff. And that is the way it was with America. We were the only people that still had factories operating. We were the only people that their population hadn't been completely decimated by the war. We were the only people that still had transportation to get the goods where they needed to go. For a good 20 years after the end of World War II, we were supplying the world with what they needed to rebuild after the bomb stopped dropping. What I want to talk about today is another war in Europe. Uh, this one did not involve us directly or even really indirectly that I can tell. But while we were not involved in the fighting, there was an incident that occurred in the Crimean War that has just entered our collective cultural consciousness. Now, the Crimean War began in October of 1853, and it lasted until February of 1856. Uh, the main combatants in the Crimean War were the Russian Empire on one side and an alliance of 
France, the United Kingdom, Sardinia, and the Ottoman Empire on the other. Now, there were a couple of other little players on both sides, but those were the, the main protagonists. How weird is it talking about the Ottoman Empire during Napoleonic times? When I think of the Ottoman Empire, I think of something far back in antiquity. The Ottoman Empire actually existed as an entity until 1922. They made it into the 20th century. That's one of those facts that sounds made up, but turns out that's absolutely true. The Ottoman Empire has only been gone for about 100 years. Now, officially in the history books, the reason for the Crimean War is because Russia and France were pressuring the Ottoman Empire to give additional rights and protections to Christians living within the empire. Now, there were a lot of other ancillary causes. Number one, the Russo-Turkish Wars had just ended a few years before. I'm sure there was still a lot of bad blood about that. But they listed several other minor causes of this war, uh, one of which was supposedly there was an argument between a Russian ambassador and a Turkish ambassador over a key, like a physical lock and unlock a door key. I couldn't find any confirmation of that, but Europeans love to go to war with each other so much, I can absolutely believe that somebody would take enough offense of that to start shooting. It's like I've said before, the only thing Europe countries have in common is that they're all really in love with shooting at each other, and they will go to war over anything. But the French were supporting the rights of Roman Catholics living in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, The Russian Empire was supporting members of the Eastern Orthodox churches. Now, the churches and the Ottoman Empire actually came to an agreement before any fighting broke out. And Napoleon, who was Emperor of France at that time, and the Tsar of Russia, Nicholas I, also signed off on this agreement. A short time after the agreement was signed, the Ottoman Empire actually wanted to change a few things. Uh, The churches agreed. Napoleon agreed. Nicholas I did not agree to the changes. He pulled out of the agreement and declared war on the Ottoman Empire. Now, the Ottoman Empire secured an alliance with Britain and France and then declared war on Russia as well. Now, Russia sent troops into what is now Romania, and the Turks sent troops there to fight a defensive battle. Uh, They were actually able to stall the Russian advance. Uh, The Russians reacted to this. Uh, They swung their troops to the I'm sorry, to the east, and those troops laid siege to a fortified town called Kars, that's K-A-R-S. Uh, Kars sits in western Armenia. The Ottoman Empire actually tried to resupply and reinforce the town of Kars, but they sent the troops and the supplies through the Black Sea, and the Russian Navy intercepted the convoy and destroyed all of the ships. Once this happened, England and France mobilized troops and sent their navies into the Black Sea to try to cut the Russian navy off and to get reinforcements to the town of Kars. Now, the Russian troops learned that the French and the British were sending troops in to reinforce Kars, and they pulled back across the Russian border. Oddly enough, you would think that that would be counted as a victory. Uh, France and England both felt that if they sent troops and ships and personnel that far into the Black Sea, and then it turned out that there was no fighting to be done, public opinion would turn against their involvement in this war. Uh, So what they decided to do was they sent their fleets and the troops 
and they laid siege to the largest Russian naval base on the Black Sea. Uh, it's at a town called Sevastopol that sits on the Crimean Peninsula. The French and British landed troops just to the east of the city, and then the navies blockaded the port at the naval base. Now, Nicholas I sent troops to try to break the siege, and the two armies met at an area called Balaclava. Now, the French, British, and Turkish troops had fortified an area at the western end of a small valley that sat up against the Black Sea, and the Russian troops entered the valley from the western end, and they very quickly set up some fortified gun emplacements both in the mouth of the valley and along the ridges to either side the higher ground overlooking the valley. This all happened on October 25th. Now, I understand as you hear this, it'll be Tuesday the 26th. But as I'm recording this, the Battle of Baklava occurred on October 25th, 1854, which means that today is the 167th anniversary of the Charge of the Light Brigade. Now, I had never really dug into this. Um, I was familiar with the Crimean War, and when I say familiar, I mean that I had heard of it. I knew it was a war in Europe. I really did not know any details. It was not taught in school. Again, we did not have anything to do with this war. And in 1854, we were really busy ramping up to have our own nice little war over here stateside. But I didn't even know why it was called the Light Brigade. I didn't know if that was just a nickname, you know, some... Military units have nicknames. They're actually called the Light Brigade because even though this is, you know, certainly not quote unquote modern times, this was, you know, the Napoleonic War era. You know, we had rifled cannons and you know, muskets, exploding cannonballs. The British and French troop or armies still employed cavalry the way we would think of cavalry back in medieval times. The reason they were called the Light Brigade is because the cavalry was divided into two sections. There was a heavy brigade where the soldiers rode the large, what we would think of as a war horse, like a, a Clydesdale or a Destrier or a, a Bergeron, the, those huge horses that you'll see being used as draft animals and things like that. But the horses were actually armored. The men wore armor. They were equipped with lances and swords, just like in medieval times. The heavy brigade was used as frontal assault, uh, actually to break enemy lines. The light brigade, the soldiers rode smaller, faster horses. Uh, they did not wear armor. Their purpose in battles was for scouting and for fast attacks on the flanks or to harass retreating troops, things of that nature. The commander of the light brigade that day was a man named James Brudenell. He was the 7th Earl of Cardigan. The heavy brigade was led by a George Bingham, who was the third Earl of Lucan. The two men were actually brother-in-laws, and by all accounts, they did not like each other one little bit. The overall commander of the British forces that day was a man named Lord Ragland. Now, early in the, early in the battle, the Russian troops managed to capture a readout from Turkish troops. Now, you'll hear the term readout in war movies, and if you're reading something about a particular battle, a readout is just a fortified position that is outside of your main line of defense. Uh, they were used to stage attacks. It can be a relatively safe place for reserve troops to wait to see if they'll be needed in the battle. Or if an attack fails, it gives you a defensive position that you can fall back to to regroup. Uh, the particular readout that the Russian troops took from the Turkish troops uh, was outfitted with several naval guns. They had large field guns at the readout. 
Lord Raglan was afraid that the Russian troops were going to take the naval guns out of that readout and move them back to their main line of defense just to bolster their own artillery there. Lord Raglan issued an order for the Light Brigade to advance on this readout and to harass the troops there to force them to fall back, either either just leave the cannons or if they tried to take the cannons with them, it would slow them down enough that the Light Brigade would have basically just cut them to pieces as they tried to move these heavy field pieces back to their own lines of defense. Now, this is what the Light Brigade was intended for. This is what the troops had trained for. Uh, This was a mission that was exactly what they were equipped and trained to do. Now, if this is what they had done, it almost certainly would have been a successful attack. Now, bear in mind, the only thing Lord Raglan wanted was to keep the Russians from taking possession of the artillery that was at the readout. Unfortunately, that is not what happened. Now, obviously, in 1854, we did not have radios at the time, so this was a period in history where, when you say you issued orders, they were actually physically written down on a sheet of paper, and somebody had to go and deliver that order to the commander. Uh, The order was given to a Captain Lewis Nolan, who went to the commanders of the cavalry and delivered the order to advance on the troops. The Earl of Lucan, uh, George Bingham, when he was being questioned about this incident after the battle, said that he asked what guns they were to attack, and he said that Captain Nolan just gestured vaguely up the valley. The valley was about a mile long. There was basically no cover in it at all, and the light brigade was going to be charging not only directly at fortified cannon positions, uh, the Russians also had cannons on the heights on either side of the valley. So they were going to be charging into cannon fire from three different directions. The order to charge was given. The Earl of Cardigan, and numbers vary, but basically about 670 cavalrymen began their charge across this mile-wide open valley. As soon as they started moving out, Captain Nolan ran to the or rode to the front of the cavalry column. Now, whether he was trying to join the charge or if he realized that they were heading in the wrong direction and was trying to head the charge off, we will never know. Unfortunately, Captain Nolan was killed pretty much instantly. A cannonball landed a few meters in front of his horse and blew up. Almost certainly shrapnel killed him, possibly just the concussion of the explosion. He actually managed to turn his horse and start back toward the British lines. But by, uh, witnesses say that after about 10 yards, he just slumped over in his saddle and fell out dead. So unfortunately, we'll never know what he was trying to do. I, I feel like he probably realized that there was about to be a monumental blunder and was trying to stop it. But at any rate, the light brigade continued up the valley, uh, under heavy cannon fire, again from three sides. They actually managed to reach the Russian lines and break through, and they very briefly routed the Russian soldiers away from their fortified positions and away from the cannons at the mouth of the valley. Uh, Now, a counterattack did push the cavalry back out of the lines, and they had to retreat back down that valley, again, being fired by cannon on three sides all the way down that valley. I think the mile, the valley was about a mile long, and I think they were within range of the cannons for 90% of that distance. They were under fire the entire time. Of the 670 men that began the charge, 110 were killed and 161 were injured. 
which is a casualty rate of about 40%, which is insanely high. It doesn't sound right, but even in frontline combat troops, in most wars, you can expect a casualty rate of about 20%, which means if you're a frontline infantry soldier, you have got about an 80% chance of going through an entire war without getting a scratch on you. So to suffer 40% casualties in the course of about 45 minutes is just a devastating percentage of soldiers to lose. And again, this is all precipitated by a misunderstood order. And you know when Commander Brudenell and all of his men heard that order and they were looking out over that flat, open, exposed expanse of ground that they were going to try to ride across in a cannon fire, you know every one of those men knew exactly what was waiting for them. And they went anyway. Now, this is one of the most egregious blunders in military history. Obviously, the attack failed. But the courage and valor of the men in the Light Brigade to make that charge into the mouths of those guns really captured the imagination. And it has lasted all through the years. Like I said, it's 167 years ago that this happened. There was a motion picture made in 1936 called The Charge of the Light Brigade. And about four weeks after the attack, Alfred Lord Tennyson, the Poet Laureate of Britain, penned a poem titled The Charge of the Light Brigade. Now, I'm not going to read you the entire thing, but I would like to read the first stanza of this poem. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward. All in the valley of death rode the six hundred. Charge was the captain's cry. Theirs is not to reason why. Theirs is not to make reply. Theirs is but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the six hundred. Now, I have heard those lines referenced 200 times in my life, and in movies and TV shows, and I never knew it came from that poem. I think I had read this poem in English class in high school. I may be remembering that wrong. Mm, Sorry, my throat's getting a little scratchy. But that just goes to show the, the lasting effect that the valiantry of these men has had through the centuries, or, well, not quite centuries yet, but we're close. You know, it seems it seems insane to to embark on this when you know that it's basically a suicide mission, that you're not probably not going to reach your objective, much less accomplish what you set out to do. But I guess the, the men of that time period, they just had a very different view of honor and courage and duty and what they were supposed to do for their country and for their leaders. And yes, it was a mistake. Yes, it was a blunder. The blunder goes down in history just as much as the bravery of the men who made the charge. But they have achieved immortality. It is just an unfortunate bit of irony that the way they achieved immortality is by dying pointlessly. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, that is about all I have for you today. And it's good timing because I swear I think I'm about to lose my voice. I thank you for sitting with me today. If you enjoyed the show, I would appreciate a like and a comment. As always, you can leave me a comment at freshfrozensouthener at gmail.com or at the Fresh Frozen Southerner Facebook page. And if you're enjoying my ramblings enough to subscribe to the show, I will show my appreciation to you by coming to your home or your place of work, and I will wrap you in a loving embrace that will last long enough to make both of us uncomfortable. All right, guys, enjoy your work week. We'll talk again on Friday, and have a good one. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.